are with Dr. Helen Fagan. Thank you all that are listening. My name is Carlos Barcenas, and you are joining me for the first podcast, first episode official of the At the Purple Table, a place for uncomfortable, comfortable conversations about, and we can fill in the blank. Dr. Fagan, thank you for being here today. Uh, you have been a mentor, a friend, a teacher. So I'll give you a chance to greet everybody, and then I'll introduce you officially with a little bit of background about you. Absolutely. Thank you, Carlos, for the invitation, and congratulations on launching your podcast. I'm really excited for you and excited for those who are going to benefit from listening to this podcast. Thanks yeah. for having me. No, thank you. And definitely, one of the things that, you know, and well, let me, let me jump to your bio. That way people know who you are, those that don't know you, because you are well-known not only in Nebraska, but in the country and also overseas in the work that you that you have done. So um, Dr. Fagan is a leadership, diversity, and inclusion scholar and practitioner. She is the founder of Global Leadership Group, which provides consulting and leadership coaching to organizations, communities, and executives in the field of diversity and inclusion and cultural competence and becoming an inclusive leader. Since 2018, Fagan has, Dr. Fagan has been a faculty member and program lead for the Inclusive Community Leadership Fellows Program at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And again, uh, it's been a few, I think we're going to maybe four or five years of uh, that we've known, and I have been richly just blessed and uh, really, I remember it was at a, Barnes and Noble, Starbucks in Lincoln. Uh, we, yeah. were, we were having a conversation because uh, I had just joined um, the Center for Rural Affairs, who has been doing amazing work as well. But I had just joined them, and um, along with Kathy Starkweather, who's my, my my boss at the time, we were looking into hey, how do we approach this diversity inclusion conversation from a, a community level, from a leadership level? Yeah, I, I have. I had been doing this type of work, and I'll put air quotes here, uh, for maybe about fifteen years. But I remember in our first conversation, you literally named every stage that I had lived as an immigrant <laughs> in the United States. Um, so you know, I came into this work uh, as an immigrant because when mm -hmm. I came to the United States, I quickly realized that there were people with good intentions, but communications was not. It, something was missing and people with good ideas, but it just wasn't working. So tell us a little bit about you. Let's start from there, um, from your journey, your expertise, and how you get into this world of inclusive leadership. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I too am an immigrant. And so we bonded over our experiences as immigrants. I uh, actually from Iran, born and raised there um, in a wealthy, established, respected family, educated family. And um, my, because of my father's position in export oil, um, we he decided that he wanted his children to be educated in another country and then come back to Iran and be leaders like he was. And so with that, um, he took my two brothers and my mom and I, we went moved to England and I was 12 years old. And that was when I started to learn to speak English. And that was also the first time that I kind of began to experience the idea of people who some people are in the in crowd and some people are not in that in crowd and what you need to be in the in crowd. And, you know, so I began 
my life as a foreigner in other places. And then eventually ended up coming to a boarding school in central Florida. Um, and my parents went back to Iran and then the hostage crisis happened. And, you know, I had no intention of doing any of this work. I mean, uh, I was 15 years old when the hostage crisis happened and I was at a boarding school and had no family in this country. And I was so afraid that I wouldn't admit to being Iranian. So to the the idea of you know that taking full circle to where I'm sitting here ha- I, and having a conversation with you on a podcast that's going to reach other people, sharing about my story, that was like not even on my radar. I wouldn't have dreamt of sharing that. But eventually, um, I began working in human resources. Um, and in my work in human resources, a lot of work in healthcare, and in human resources, you're always looking to, you know, hire talent, retain talent, promote talent. And so the idea of diversity and inclusion is very much on the forefront. But really, again, it wasn't something that I was thinking that I would be doing until a situation happened with my father, who spoke really good English, but when he had a stroke, he lost the capacity to comprehend English. And then the way he was treated when he was in the hospital by a nurse, um, you know, he had a stroke and couldn't comprehend any in language except our native language, which is, you know, in and of itself from a neuroscience standpoint is fascinating. But this was in the early 90s. And so we didn't know as much as we know now about the brain. And so um, I, I, the way, I, the way that she reacted to my dad, not comprehending her, and the frustration she felt. And I worked in human resources in healthcare at that time. I mean, I worked in the corporate offices of a company that owned 16 hospitals around the country. And I reported to the vice president of a human resources who reported to the president of the company. So I was like, no, you can't treat patients like this. This is wrong. So then when we ended up coming to Nebraska, um, Nine months later, um, I decided that I was going to do whatever was in my power to make sure what happened to my father didn't happen again. And so that's when the opportunity at Bryan Health came up and I created and led their diversity and inclusion efforts for a number of years and then moved into teaching at Bryan College of Health Sciences and eventually going on to researching and studying this and really around the idea of how do you develop this capacity in individuals. Awesome. No, it's been been a journey. And a couple of things that resonated with me and as we jump into the next piece, but I remember in that conversation, you know, we bonded through this immigrant experience. Um, and I remember myself not wanting to say that I was Mexican. When people, mm-hmm. in, when I would in, get introduced to people and meet new people and they would say, well, where are you from? And I did not want to say I was Mexican because of the baggage mm-hmm. that I had heard others say about Mexicans. So it was kind of it, it was it was difficult to face, um, but went through that. And you know, I think I remember hearing from you that as an immigrant, we have many community leaders, many communities that are looking to integrate more of the immigrant population. But I remember uh, you sharing a little bit around, it takes about 25 years for a first-generation immigrant to feel like part of the community. Can you share Mm -hmm. a little bit about that? For those that are listening, I think it's very important because I remember seeing it in our conversation when the libel went on. I'm like, wow, no kidding. It took me 20 years to acculturate, learn the culture, learn the ins and outs. And I still find new things, not an expert. But that's Mm -hmm. when I felt like, 
Uh, sometimes we are wanting first-generation immigrants that have been here one, three, five years, and they find it difficult. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. Absolutely. When you're first new to an environment, I mean, think of yourself as moving even just from one com one state to another, how long it takes you to adapt, to get to your bearings, get to know the people, what's, what's you know, the to do in town, where should I live, those kinds of things. Now, imagine you're moving from one country to another, learning the language. And, you know, if you're an immigrant, most immigrants, most refugees and there is a difference between those two so for people who don't know the, that difference immigrants um, are choosing to come refugees do not have a choice there is some kind of war or something happening and the united nations high commission establishes a country as a country where people can be a refugee from. So that that happens outside of the realms of the U.S. But anyways, refugees a lot of times don't have a say as to where they go, they get placed, whereas immigrants choose to, you know, where they go, typically where family is. But so that first five years, you're just kind of getting your bearings. And a lot of times you're learning the language, you're learning just basic survival skills in this new environment. Then the next five years, you are, you know, instead of working two and three jobs while trying to learn the language, now you've learned the language and you're getting, you know, you're, you're doing better, you're feeling more comfortable, but you still don't feel like you have a voice. You don't feel like you can say anything as to what could be improved, what, what systems or issues can be improved. Then you move into the year of 15 to 20, and that's when you, the person really begins to say, okay, I understand my own culture and I understand this new environment. Now, if people are forced into assimilation or if they're excluded, that process becomes even more delayed, right? It takes much longer. And then the age of the person at the time that they get exposed to a new culture has a lot to do with how qu quickly they're acculturated. The other piece that really impacts people's acculturation is the support network that's around them. So if you have people who are from the new country, new environment that are becoming your friends, they're helping you navigate life in this environment, they're helping you, that becomes your scaffolding, that helps kind of speed up that process. But really, you're moving, and if, you know, if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you, you don't really get up to that top level hierarchy of, you know, like self-actualization, which is where people have to get to, to want to volunteer or to do those kind of things. all my other needs are met so now i'm ready to give back mm -hmm. that you. is what really takes that 20 25 years for people to get there and it is a journey right and, and i mean along it is those, along those lines is who do you the people that you come across the people that you meet and again back to this pyramid of needs um depending where we go into the u.s so there isn't a one size fits all we all have a personal experience a personal journey that we must go through um and actually i i ran into a uh, i have the pleasure and honor to go work with another friend from years ago then i remember him in high school or actually junior high and i remember saying or just experiencing how good he was about working with me and my limited english 
And it, it is people that mark your journey. And it's, it's people that really help you build on, well, that makes me feel part of the community. Even though I there was other things going on that made me, maybe I didn't feel part of the community. It was this personal relationships where people helped me build my pyramid. So let's put it, let's put it that way. Um, so let's jump a little bit into diversity inclusion there's been a lot going on and especially in in the last year we are here a year after uh the incident with george floyd we've had political unrest we've had racial and we there's a lot happening (coughs) so how can we start with when people say diversity inclusion inclusion inclusive leadership um would you give us a little bit okay what does that mean let's start with a foundation so that we can be on a similar page Yeah, absolutely. Carlos, one of the things I realized, first of all, is I love the word absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I say that a lot. So if you're hearing that over and over again, that's because I enjoy, I'm agreeing with you. I'm like, yes, let's talk about that. Because a lot of times those words have been used and have become politicized in some respects where people are thinking of them in negative terms. But realistically, diversity is about the multiple ways human beings are different, beginning with personality. Then you move into the race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, age, you know, all these things. And then you move into things like, you know, socioeconomic level, education level, you know, what part of community do you live in? What's your background and training? What's your hot habits or hobbies or marital status, parental status, all these things. And then we take all of the, that diversity, those differences that we have as human beings. By the way, we are the most complex beings on the planet, Definitely. right? Well, that's my wife so, says about me. So I know I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm complicated and difficult now. Yes, we are. We We are are. the most complex beings on the planet, but we want to apply a two-dimensional idea to people. We want to say, oh, he's male, he's Hispanic, then I know what this person is. And that doesn't work that way, right? We have to put work into it to get to know people, to understand people. But those differences, then we go into an organization and there's even more differences, So diversity at the very core of it is basically human differences. Yeah. Inclusion is our ability to take those differences and help people feel like they belong and they matter and that their differences are essential and needed and necessary Mm. part of the fabric of who we are as a human being group and everything that we do. You know, and and I think um, when we take all these differences in how we make it work, when we say inclusion, sometimes mm, I get this general idea that we think, well, if it's going to be easy, just because we're included doesn't mean that we don't have to do some work because we are complicated creatures, right? We have to engage in conversations. Uh, it's going to be tough, tough work that we need to do. Um, and I, I see it as a, it's not, it's, it's a complex system. It's not a white, black or white. It's, I'm reading a book and I keep, the title escapes me, but it, it talks about complicated problems and complex problems. And it's just along the lines of complicated is easy. Because you can figure a pattern, you can figure how to solve it, 
but complex there is so many things that you have to take into account uh, so we we have to be intentional we have to be willing to have those hard conversations in working with differences so um as we transition in what is inclusive leadership and why it's impor important, and especially now, I think this transition of working with differences, working with commonalities, that's something that I took away. At the beginning, as an immigrant to the United States, my, my skin color and my race and ethnicity became very apparent um, to what my life was going to be here. But I, then I jumped into what you just said, the circles of multicultural self, like my inner circle, the things that I that cannot be changed, right? It, my, my gender, my sexual orientation, my, um, my age, those things. But then this outer circle of what I choose to be part of or believe in my experiences, how do we get better at working with differences? So why intercultural leadership, inclusive leadership? Why? What is it? Why now? Well, I, I think we've, uh, we've needed to do this for a while, but the reality is inclusive leaders are, so there's, you know, as a leadership scholar, there's like, I could get into the theory of leadership and whole idea around leadership, but really my personal definition of leadership, because, they, because, you know, leadership scholars like to joke that there's as many definitions of leadership as there are people trying to define it. So I'll share my personal definition of leadership, which is a positive influence that results Whoa. in health. I'm sorry. See, technology, I'm getting. So for all of you that are listening, <laughs> I'm getting so into the conversation that I set my mouth, my, my hand out on the pad and hit the music. So, uh -oh. um, <laughs> Here we go. That is the intro for it. Give us your definition right. of what <laughs> leadership. So my definition of leadership is positive influence that results in healthy outcomes and moves people forward. Now, leadership scholars who have looked at the idea of leadership will say that, you know, for example, one definition is leadership is a dynamic, interactive working relationship between a leader and one or more followers that are operating in a framework. So leader, first of all, is important to understand. Leader is different than manager. Manager is someone promoted into a position of authority. Leader is the attributes the person has and who and how they choose to use those. Okay, so that's the leader piece. Inclusive leadership is really the concept that these are individuals who foster inclusion through their words and their actions by creating an environment where there's an, an appreciation for the differences that people have. Now, we've been studying this topic for a while, and what we know is that the attributes of inclusive leaders begins with an intercultural mindset, which you're familiar with, Carlos, Definitely. the use of the instrument, the intercultural development inventory. So one of the first things we need to do is to help people to get into that intercultural mindset. And, and once they are there, They've gotten there because they have a commitment to diversity 
and cultural competence. They really want to celebrate differences and that the people bring. And they want to navigate commonalities and differences across cultures. That's one of the key attributes of inclusive leaders. They offer their followers support. They're willing and able to offer support, to listen, to ask for feedback. They're open to accepting the differences and they really work hard at creating trusting relationship with everyone, people who are different. They have these strong ideals. They're very, typically, they tend to be very courageous. They utilize authenticity, relational transparency, where I'm not hiding anything from you. Who I am is who I am all the time. I don't have my work persona and my home persona. I am authentically this person. And there's a humility and an empathy that runs through the veins of inclusive leaders. And they are willing to set aside their own preconceived notions, suspend judgment about other people, and collaborate with people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different environments. They really create, are, are willing to challenge systems that are not inclusive. Mm. They want to change those systems. They want to create areas of improvement and they want to advocate for that change. So they're not, that's where the courageous piece comes in. They're brave and courageous and they're willing to fight for those things that are important at the same time as bridging differences. So those are the research that we've been doing in the area of inclusive leadership. These are the attributes of inclusive leaders that we see. Yeah. You know, and it, uh, to me, it just reminds me, I've always been, I've always leaned towards this empathetic world uh, empathetic approach and i'm i'm a work in progress i'm still working through my intercultural development inventory i'm still um trying to do better uh, and, and one of the things that the reason i chose purple and the reason it's called the purple table and i chose to be you know i choose purple consulting is it Purple is a secondary color, so you have to mix your reds and you have to mix your blues. Now, for all of you listening, and it's not necessarily a political statement, however it could be, but your blues and your reds are your likes, your dislikes, your biases, your prejudice, uh, your preferences. And I do believe that if we want to be inclusive leaders, everything that you just mentioned has to be with, are you willing to be intentional? And are you willing to be vulnerable? And are you willing to learn how to suspend your judgment? And it doesn't mean that you're going to say yes to everybody, right? It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that you're going to sacrifice or compromise your beliefs or your values. It Correct. just means you're able to empathetically see the other person and try to figure out where do they come from. And I'm sure you have a better way to say it than I just did, but I think those are, you have to be intentional. You have to be willing to be vulnerable. Be authentic. Um, and it doesn't mean you compromise who you are. And I think that's where people get stuck. That if I engage with so-and-so, if I engage with this group, if I raise this flag or that flag, I'm compromising my values. Can you expand a little bit on that or even clarify what I just tried to say? <laughs> I think you did a really great job, Carlos. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the secondary color of purple and the mixing of the blue and the red that creates the purple. And, you know, when we talk about um, diversity and inclusion, we a lot of time talk about bridging differences. That was some of the language that was used early 
on in the 80s and 90s in, in this work was bridging differences or bridging the gap that exists and those kinds of things. And really, purple is a bridging color right? It reaches both to red and yeah. to the blue. So it's a bridging color. And that's what, what, you're, what you're sharing. In order for me to be comfortable in an environment that is neither black nor white, neither blue nor red, I really have to be able to transcend my own perspective, recognize that I see the world this way, because of my experiences, my background, my upbringing, that other people I'm experiencing aren't necessarily seeing the world the same way. So I have to be able to transcend perspective mm. and say, what does it look like from where they're seeing it? Yeah. And that takes a lot of work. It takes a level of emotional maturity that from a neuroscience standpoint, when we are in places where things are difficult and challenging, our brain, our executive function, our prefrontal cortex kind of goes offline. If you are a computer, it goes offline mm -hmm. and our emotional brain takes over. So our ability is inhibited to be able to do that. And so when I say emotional maturity, what I mean is we can see this coming up in ourselves. Uh-oh my prefrontal cortex is going offline. I'm having an emotional reaction to what he just said. I need to pause. I need to back away. I need to breathe. I need to whatever. And then I need to re-engage, give myself time so that I'm not having an emotional reaction. Hmm. In this day and age, it's really hard for people to do that. Yeah, It is really hard to do it. And our brain, it's, because it's hard, our brain wants us to take the easy way out. Because it's hard work. Yeah. And, and I've been told by people, you know, I shouldn't tell, say that diversity and inclusion work is hard work, but it is hard work. It's exercising new muscles. If you're, uh, you know, if it would be like telling someone who's training for a marathon that running a marathon is not hard work. Training to run for a marathon is not hard work. It is hard work. You're using muscles you've never used before. The same thing here. We're using muscles we've never used before. We have to train our brain, our psyche, our emotions to be able to manage that. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, again, I, I 100% there. And as we transition, of, what are some, maybe some tips? We're, we'll transition. Uh, I'll make a couple more thoughts that are floating in my mind. But um, what are some tips, ideas in creating spaces for, you know, healing and conversation, and especially around polarizing topics? But two things come to mind in my journey you know, I host, I host, or I have the opportunity to host conversations that I call uncomfortable, comfortable conversations about race, about biases. And while I enjoy it, and I'm working to get better at having these conversations, I'm still not an expert. I'm still in this journey. But I do like to, one of the things that I've realized in my life is if I put myself into situations that get me stressed, that push me. Let me give you an example. Volleyball. We play volleyball with a few friends and we go to competitions. Our work, we go for fun, but at the same time, we want to win. And when we go to a uh, competition or tournaments, we know that we might not get first place. But one of the things is that I, I like to put myself in that situation because when I find myself getting frustrated, it gives you an opportunity to see how I treat others, 
how I express myself and look at that boundary and realize, wow, we do this in leadership. We do this in relationships. And I think this is the boundary that when people say, well, diversity is hard or inclusion is hard because you have to be able to be not able to be willing to write this boundary where you can say, wow, I'm letting my emotions get the best of me. So in leadership, when you're making decisions, the importance of being able to ride your emotions. Um, so I think that gives us an opportunity to see who are we, right? Especially during stress, it reveals the essence of who we are. So mm -hmm. what would you say are, um, as we get closer here to wrapping up and, you know, and I often, people have asked me, well, what are some things, some simple things that we can do? Well, what are some fast things or easy things? And to your sports analogy, I have a friend who has uh, many world records on weightlifting. And I have another friends that are just compete. And one time I asked, how many times have you broken a world record in the gym before you've done it in a competition? You know, and they've done it multiple times before they've done it in a competition. And I think many times we have that mentality that, well, you don't have to do anything. You show up, you show up and it'll happen and, and you'll be a success or it'll be easy. But you have to put in the time in the gym. Literally, mm -hmm. right? So give us what, what do you what do you tell those that are listening in this journey that we're talking about? Where can they start? Where do we go? Where do we go from here? Put yourself in places that make you uncomfortable and then notice your emotional reactions. I tell people get a single subject notebook, and every time you have an emotional reaction to something someone says or does, or doesn't do or doesn't say that you expected them to say or do, jot it down. Call it my intercultural insights journal and ask yourself, what is it about the situation that's making me react this way? What were my expectations? What did I think would happen? For many of us, we are not familiar with how culture influences our behavior. So we may not be familiar with how individualistic I am while someone else is collectivistic. I may not be familiar with how um, my own biases are limiting my ability to be inclusive as a leader. I may not even be aware that I have biases. I may not be comfortable admitting that I have biases, but the reality is as human beings, we all have biases. And you know, the question that I ask, you said uncomfortable conversations, uncomfortable, comfortable conversations. Well, one of the questions that frames one of the classes I teach at University of Nebraska is, um, you know, who are you most afraid to bring home as your future spouse? I ask these young students this question, and I tell them that their parents' conscious biases are internalized and become their unconscious biases. So their parents may have never said, you can't date a Hispanic. You can't, you know, date, date someone of the same gender. You can't date gender. someone of this. You can't, whatever. They may never have said that, but something in the upbringing, in the environment, has led them to believe this would not be acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I don't ask my students the question to say there's something wrong with your family or they're bad people or make them feel guilty. I'm asking that question because I want them to take this unconscious thought and bring it to the forefront of their minds and then wrestle with it. Yeah. wrestle with it in terms of how does this influence who I choose as a friend? How does this influence 
who I interact with, how will this influence you when you're a leader and you're responsible for hiring someone, for promoting someone? Being able to have that kind of ongoing reflective and really thinking about those things, marry that with learning new information. And then put on top of that, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations is kind of like your weightlifting regimen for becoming inclusive. There you go. So that combination of things is what it's going to take. And it takes time. It won't happen overnight. It will, it will take time. And I've been doing this for as long as I've been doing it. And I still have work to do. As long as I have breasts, I have work to do. You know, so. and I think that again, we've created this context or idea that if you engage into this type of self growth, self awareness, you know, there might be something wrong with you. Because I, I, I have used the same question, I've learned it from you, changed my life, I share it, you know, and that's what I tell my the people that I speak with or, or my friends. There's nothing. There's a lot of cultural context that we have to take into account, you know, when where your parents were raised, how they were raised. Um, so make, even when I coach uh, clients with the intercultural development inventory, you know, I tell them, mm-hmm. or I've had questions, well, is, is this going to tell you how prejudiced or how racist I am? And I'm like, has nothing to do with that. We all have a journey or an experience. And sometimes we're quick to say, well, that person might be prejudiced or racist, or but the reality is we all have biases. We all have work to do. And at the end of the day, don't we want to be better for our kids, for our community, for our just those that we have around? And uh, we're gonna. Uh, I know you've written a book, uh, and I <laughs> I am so excited because it's again, Doctor Figgin. One of the things that I've loved about the work that you're doing and the work that has grown um, that I'm working on is. This holistic approach, really, it goes beyond how do you work with a minority group, right? Ethnicity. We think Mm -hmm. of diversity and many times, well, we think of ethnicity. But when you mentioned culture earlier, we're talking about there is so many cultural groups and things that we do depending on who we are, uh, Mm -hmm. religion, religious affiliation, um, even just, you know, the marketing department and the PR or the um, finance mm-hmm. department in an organization. They do things different. So there is so much to learn, but it's a very holistic approach. It involves the mind, involves the heart, and we can all do better. All we can uh, learn to just be more empathetic. I do believe that we have to do work at the individual level, the organizational level, and then at the community level. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think as many times that we say we want to change your community. Well, we got to look into our organizations, but then at the end of the day, it's about you. It's about me. Are we making our places better? So Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about your book. Um, I'm excited. I mean, again, I've known you for about four or five years, maybe longer. I'm not sure, but it has changed the way I approach uh, relationships, the way I approach leadership and just the way I approach my community. So. Yeah, so my book is called Becoming Inclusive, A Worthy Pursuit in Leadership. And in the book, I really use, like you said, at the end of the day, it's about, you know, you and I individually and before we can change our communities and our organizations. And that's something that I've believed is individual growth precedes group shift 
organizational shift, community shift, whatever that environment is. So the Becoming Inclusive book is really my own journey of becoming inclusive. But I also bring in um, my work at the hospital. I bring in my research. I bring in the voices of former students and community leaders I've worked with. And I talk about the research that we've done. And I've talked about, so I bring in multiple different lenses into this book. Um, and it's not a very thick book. But then at the end of each chapter, I've got a couple questions to get people to think, to reflect. And my hope is, you know, um, someone asked me, what would what would I consider success with this book? You know, if it changes one person's approach to how they work around this topic, I will feel like it's been a success. And more than anything, I want, you know, I think about my grandchildren. I have one grandson whose mother is from El Salvador and the father is my son, who's part Iranian, part German, Irish, you know, Native American, right? So my son is this person, and then his wife is Salvadorian. And so I've got this grandson who's part Hispanic. Then I've got this other grandson whose um, mother is German Polish, and dad is part Iranian, part Irish, German, you know, Native American. Yeah. So one grandson is like, light hair, <laughs> hazel eyes, the other one, dark hair, more olive skin, dark eyes. And these, I absolutely adore these two boys with all of my heart. And it breaks my heart to think that one of them would somehow be treated less than mm. just because of the color of their skin or the way they look. And I don't want that for their future, just as you don't want that for your children, Carlos. Mm. And so that's why I do the work that I do. It's because I want us to create this better tomorrows is what I call it, you know, oh. for our every environment that we're in. And that's what the purpose of the book is. Um, people can get it on Amazon, you know, bookstores, yeah. And if you happen to see me, I'd be happy to autograph it for you. <laughs> there we go. There you go. No, that, that was that was powerful. And I've got to say that, you know, again, this inclusion, diversity, equity, there's a lot of stuff happening in, in at the United States level in Nebraska, outside of the United States that can be polarizing. But I'm with you, regardless of, you know, maybe somebody's listening saying, well, is there an agenda? What's happening? Uh, we're trying to push one side or the other. Really? At the end of the day, we're just trying to make our communities better. And we have to mm -hmm. be able to engage in these difficult conversations. You know, I, I my kids have a white sounding name and a uh, Mexican name. They have my my first and middle name as their middle names because I've also thought, you know, they're light skinned, but will their name or last name ever ever prevent them from a job or the way they get treated? Uh Will they feel proud of their Mexican father, right? Or when mm -hmm. they have kids, when they tell the story of their Mexican grandfather. Uh, so I, it's very important because we do want to create better, stronger communities. And it is not about just ethnicity. There are just so many other things. It's about becoming a better human being for yeah. all and creating a, a, a better future. I will add the link to your book on on the description. Um, 
We would love to hear feedback from all of you that are listening. Uh, I would like to give you a chance. Is there anything else you would like to add as we close? Anything else I'd like to add? I love your heart for people, Carlos. Uh, you inspire me. Thank you for what you're doing. And our world is better. Nebraska is better because you're in it. Thank you. And again, a lot of respect. Honor to have you here. And with that today, we're going to try to see if this works again. Let me see here. We close out. We hope to see you and hear you at the next Purple Table. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of I Choose Purple Consulting. Stay tuned for more episodes of At the Purple Table, a place for uncomfortable, comfortable conversations. See you soon.